Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. He put the final touches on it and he looked at it. And all he said out loud was, I did it. I really, really did it. And he shouted, yelling for his dad, because the first thing after completing this project that he wanted to do is he wanted to show his dad. But his dad couldn't hear him, so he dropped his tools and he started running inside, wiping the sweat off his face. His hands were tired, his forearms were sore, his shoulders were heavy, his feet were covered in blisters, and the midday thirst. All that stuff got covered up by the joy and the adrenaline of him actually being able to do it. So he did it. Um, and this is a, just a fun, beautiful little story about, you know, I can't imagine all the little projects that Jesus and his, son, and his dad, Joseph, did together. And I love thinking of what could have been. Yeah, of course, you're not going to be able to find that in the Bible, but them doing projects together, um, carpenters, and actually that's a, a weird little phrase and it's a, actually a bad translation because I visited Israel and they kind of went over all the masonry, all the stones, and there wasn't a lot of trees. There was like, <laughs> there was like two trees in Nazareth. And we were just talking over all the stuff that they would build and the foundations of houses and all this stuff. And you know, I just imagined Jesus's forearms just being gigantic. And the stuff they did together as father and son, giving thanks to the Lord, the work that they did with passion, with inspiration, diligence, and holy intent. This was his calling. This was the family's work, and they did it together. And that's what um, Jesus was going to do for decades to come, was build things with his hands. And this, this story is just is, enters into the continuation of the series that we've been in the flat for the fa- our last few weeks called Future Church. And so today I get the opportunity to talk to you about work, careers, vocation, and calling, what that looks like. And if I've never met you, my name is Zach. Um, I've been part of Light Church and serving and being under Benji's, Benji and Jen's wing uh, for the past couple of years. And I'm a pastor up north at Collective Church. And um, I just a little shout out to Benji and Jen without your guys' direction and um, loving support and guidance. I don't think um, myself, um, my walk with Jesus or my church would be anywhere close to where it is today. And so I just want to go on this journey with you. And so if you want to write down the title or you need a title for today's message, it's called um, A Community of Contribution in a Culture of Careerism. And I'll say that one more time. A Community of Contribution in a culture of careerism. And so before we go into the setup and scripture and stuff, I would just like to simply pray. Um, Father, gracious God, Holy Spirit, um, I pray that you use me right now. Father, I pray that we have our hearts and our eyes and our ears open to what you want to speak to us today. May we rest in your truth. May we rest in you. May we walk in the ways of your son. Make us more like your son, Jesus. And for his sake, and in his name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles out, um, we're going to be in the beginning. And that's how we're going to start it off today. Um, In Genesis 
chapter one. It's just going to kind of set up the scene of what us humans are to do in the terms of work. Um, so Genesis chapter one, uh, verse 26 through 29, and it says this, God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals and over all the creature, creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, that will be yours for food. Uh, loved ones, turn the page to Genesis 2, a little bit more scripture, Genesis 2, chapter, um, Genesis 2, 8 through, 8 through 15. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It, winds through the it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good, aromatic, resin, onyx, and also there. We're also there. The name of the second river is Gehan. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Thank you, God, for your word. Um, so I just want to start off this message about contribution and careerism with a little quote from David Foster Wallace in his famous commencement um, address. And it says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So we've said a lot over the past couple weeks about secularism in America and how religion has not gone away. You know, I mean, you could really argue that um, uh, secularism and religion has been so much more involved in the day-to-day -day culture, but it's shifted into a religion of politics. Um, but there's also another little pseudo-religion that a lot of people don't talk about and and we don't shine a lot of light on. And since over the last year, since of COVID and um, a form of idolatry that is like ripping away and like fighting for your allegiance, your heart's allegiance, your mind's allegiance, and just trying to push you towards um, another religion. And that religion is that of work. Um, Derek Thompson, a staff writer for the Atlantic calls it workism. In his article, workism is making Americans miserable he writes this, workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Now, what is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, 
but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The best educated and the highest earning Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. Our desks were never meant to be our altars. So we think of the imagery of maybe a WeWork or a Google office complex with everything you can ever imagine. You go to work, you have a cafe, a gym, a daycare, anything that you can list, a, a school, a community events, and man, do I wish my work had some nap pods, but you find those everywhere, all designed to make uh, your job your life, to make your job your identity, and your community of belonging, your purpose in life is your work. I remember visiting my, um, my brother in um, his office when he worked for Microsoft back in the day, and he led me to the break room. And I'll tell you what, if you know anything about me, you know for sure that my middle name is Snacks. I have granola bars, fruit all the time in my car, ready to rock and roll because a malnourished Zach is something and someone no one wants to be around. So me walking into this conference room at Microsoft, the vending machines were free. I think you could put an order in for an omelet or something. It was gigantic. There was unlimited drinks, unlimited coffee, unlimited espresso machine access. It was just an amazing. And I was like, I would have never left. And, and I would have been so excited to go to work. And I think this is um, kind of a problem. So work has evolved, especially um, for educated millennials and soon for Gen Z from a means of material production to a means of identity production. And this is a part of a larger, larger cultural shift across the West from um, an honor culture to what a, a Korean German philosopher Han calls it an achievement society. So from an honor culture to an achievement society. So in an honor culture, you accrue social um, capital by serving well in your community, like father, son, um, uh, mother or daughter or craftsperson or an authority figure in your community, you accrue capital. But now we all know this, to accrue social capital um, through education, we get that through education, career, wealth, status, fame, social media followers, and it's, it's heartbreaking. But so put another way, value is no longer given based on who one is, but on what one does. And there's a quote in my room that I kind of Jimmy, Jimmy rigged to where like I can see it every time I walk in most days. And the quote says, what I do matters, who I am matters much more. And I don't know where you're at right now in your career, your job or vocation or whatever you're pursuing, if it's your dream or not, the, if it's mundane and you hate it or whatever's going on and you don't like your boss, whatever it is, this is a message of encouragement that what you do matters, of course it does, and what your work is matters, but who you are and who you become in Jesus matters much more. And that's just a little um caveat there but um again you know quoting han again he uh has an excellent book called the burnout society and he writes about how the result of an achievement culture is generation is a is a huge generational epidemic of burnout and chronic anxiety and if there was a mission statement for my life this past month about um 
doing too much and I felt like I was striving um, towards, you know, because right now I'm bivocational. I'm in the middle of planning a church, but I'm also a full-time personal trainer. And the, the way the enemy attacks time and how I need to keep striving and there's always something I could do. I mean, I got caught up in trying to do things for the Lord instead of just be a son for the Lord. And it kind of hit me and I had to pursue help. I had to, you know, talk to Benji about it. I had to talk to a lot of mentors about, hey, how can I slow down and rest in the Lord and not trying to strive so much? And it just really hit. And, and this is, it's ironic that Benji had me ask or preach this message because this next stat, in fact, is, um, it got me pretty emotional because um, in 2019, the World Health Organization finally included burnout in its international classification of diseases. And it's getting worse. In the spite of all the, even in the spite of all the chatter of wellness, and I'm a personal trainer, I know healthy mind and body, but sometimes I forget spirit. Sometimes I forget, you know, some of us might be heavy in, you know, scripture and in devotional life, but we might forget um, the health of our physical mind and our physical body. But it's true about burnout and it's true about anxiety. Um, and through, through this study, through COVID, 89%, we're talking about their um, work life or burnout, 89% of respondents said their work life was getting worse. 62% of people had experienced burnout often or extremely often in the previous three months. Only 20, 21% rated their well-being as good, and a mere 2% rated it as excellent. And so when I hear 2%, um, the translation is like, well, we, we get it. Work is very, very good and important thing of our life. It takes care of our needs. It takes care of our bills. It takes care of our families. But for many, especially the educated, it has turned into a religion. And um, it's, it's really awesome that I get to speak into this because it's so impactful in my life um, that we need to stop striving and making work a religion. And, and it's an altar of which people sacrifice their soul. And it's a very, very, very bad religion. And to stem right into it, um, over against a culture of workism is the biblical vision of work, not as careerism, but as contribution, just like the title. So our big focus here today is contribution um, to the kingdom. So let me sketch out some biblical thoughts and theology of work in just a few minutes. Um, so in Genesis 1, humanity is created to rule. You see that often. The word in Hebrew is radah. One Hebrew scholar defined it as to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. Just think about that for a second. You actively partner with God in taking the world forward. It can be translated rule or reign or have dominion. It's the language of royalty. In fact, in the ancient Near East, the phrase, the image of God, was only for the king. Uh, the king was thought of as quasi-divine, a priest-like mediator between God or the gods in Egypt or Syria or Babylon. This meant that everyone else did not have the image of God. 
which in turn meant that everyone else was essentially slave labor to Pharaoh or to his rich friend's bidding. But set against ancient Near Eastern culture, the Genesis story is submersive to the abuse of power. It says, no, we are all made in the image of God. Not just the kings, not just men, not just one ethnic group. All people, including you and I, are made in the image of God. Made to rule over the world on God's behalf. Gathering up the creation's praise and worship and somehow giving it back to, to the creator. And ruling is a lot like what we call work. And so in Genesis 2, we read about the raw materials in the garden, the trees, the water, the gold, the aromatic resin, and human is put into the garden to work, to work it and to take care of it. And so just a few short words on each of those two. Um, first, human is to work it. And the Hebrew word is abad, and it can be translated in, translated cultivate or develop or draw out its potential. Listen to uh, Timothy Keller. I call him uh, Grandpa, Grandpa Tim. Um, Timothy Keller's definition of work based on biblical theology. Um, rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. And that's so, the, the potential for the flourishing of everyone. And that is true of all sorts of work. When the farmer takes the soil and seed, it's, it's, uh, plant, it, it's planted and then all of a sudden a crop comes out and all those materials are formulated together for the flourishing of people, for the markets, for people to buy. And then it goes right into another little segue and those materials are then gathered together in a restaurant to make a burger and, and to share in the community or when an entrepreneur takes an idea, Encinitas is known for its creativity and its entrepreneurship and their mindful thoughts. So people gather those thoughts together and put them into creation to further and flourish the community. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, or a craftsperson takes a lump of metal and makes something, or a parent takes a child, a human being, and helps that child flourish with the things around it, the, the environment, the the tools used to just be a good parent to make that child flourish in the community. All beautiful things to push the world forward. And all this is the work of cultivation. In fact, our world, our, our word culture comes straight from this idea of cultivation. Um, good culture is the result of good people who take the raw stuff of the planet, earth, and make it into a place of delight. So first, we humans are called to work it work the planet. Secondly, we are to take care of it. In Hebrew, the word sh is shamar, and it can be translated into guard or to watch over or to protect it. Our generation is seriously more aware than any in a very long time that we need to take care of the earth, to steward it because we believe that the earth is the Lord's and not ours. And it doesn't even take a Christian organization to say, hey, we need to be better at keeping the trash out of the lakes and oceans. There's just so much green work happening to take care of the planet. Uh, but us Christians, we need to take um, pride over the fact that we need to take care of it and we need to work it. So this means we're just not called to any kind of work, but to garden-like work. Um, our call as Christians, you and I watching, our call is to continue what Adam and Eve started, 
it's key to realize that the garden was a project, not a product. And that kind of blew my mind. I'm like, what do you mean the, the garden that God made was, was a project? And because meaning it was designed to go somewhere. Like the garden was designed to go somewhere because the work that was going to ensue. The, so scholars argue God's original intention pre-fall was for Adam and Eve to spread the boundaries of the garden out over the whole earth. So think of it in that whatever your theater of your mind goes to imagining Eden, um, what that garden looked like, just imagine it covering the entire earth and it's a beautiful little picture. Um, that's why when you get to the end of the Bible, to the revelation, the last two chapters are about the future and they're dripping with the illusion after illusion to Eden. But in Revelation, it's not a garden anymore. It's a garden-like city. Why? I mean, you, you would think that if Jesus' agenda was to fix the world, that story would end back where it started, in the garden with everyone naked and unashamed, but instead it's similar, but it's different. It's not a garden, it's a garden-like city with walls and gates and streets and dwellings and culture and food and art and music. It's a beautiful thing, why? Because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. It was always supposed to become a garden-like city. And so now there is, this is the time where we're gonna like come together as a family, Light Church, uh, and practice the way of Jesus and our rule of life to participate in the vision of work and to shift our heart from work as careerism to work as contribution to the kingdom, to the world for its flourishing. And yes, it's the practice of vocation. So we don't think vocation as practice a lot. We don't think of our jobs a lot as discipleship. We don't think that when we get to work, that is continuation of our discipleship to the Jesus and to become more like him, because which is really tragic because we spend something like two thirds of our life working. And if we cut that out from our spiritual life, you know, like if you get to work and all of a sudden your discipleship stops, it's essentially cutting Jesus out of the majority of your life. And so this is just kind of bringing us back in and saying, hey, no, we are called to be disciples and Christians and to ensue devotion to the Lord no matter what we're doing. So the word vocation itself comes from the Latin vocatio. It means calling. Um, and now there's like, um, three layers or so to calling or vacation in biblical theology, and it's just um, quickly getting into those. Um, so vocation, number one, we are called to follow Jesus. And I know that might sound new but or old, but um, it might be a new perspective for you. This is the main way the word calling is used in the New Testament. Our first and primary call, loved ones, is to follow Jesus. Jesus. It's not a job or a career. It is to follow Jesus. So number one, we are called to follow Jesus. Number two, we are called to do our work as an act of discipleship to Jesus. We don't think of work as an act of discipleship, but think about it. Jesus was a carpenter, and actually you've heard that word carpenter a lot, but it's actually, a, a again, like I said earlier, a bad translation. It's because um, the word is tecton, and it's, you know, really... Um, talking about mason, a mason worker, um, and masonry with stones and materials throughout the land. 
for decades. Jesus was this person working in that field for decades. If he came today, he could be very well a software engineer or a barista or a contractor or an artist or anything, a small business owner, mean, meaning he could have done what you did or what you do right now. And so we must come to our view of work, whether it's our job or our work as a stay-at-home parent or a caregiver or a volunteer, whether it's glamorous or mundane, as a point, a key point of our discipleship, as the place we spend the bulk of our time and as a primary context in our spiritual formation. Because trust me, I have my days just like you guys do, doing your work, wishing and aspiring and praying and dreaming of doing something else. I get it. But this is the place we work out our spiritual life. So number one, we are called to follow Jesus. Number two, we are called to do our work as an act of discipleship to Jesus. And number three, we are called to play a role in the family of God and the flourishing of humanity. What an opportunity. We get the role in the kingdom of God as a son or daughter to help humanity flourish. So, I mean, we beat up a lot on um, Western individualism a lot like me centered. It's all about me. I am a nut, all this stuff. But you can argue that individualism comes out of Christian theology. From God and church and family, it's turned toxic in the West. But the idea that you are, in Psalms 139 language, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you have such a specific purpose and identity in the kingdom of God, and that you have an, a unique, a very unique contribution to make. Don't ever think you're insignificant and don't ever think that God can't use you to grow and flourish humanity. That individualism is actually a very Christian idea. So in Christian theology, your calling isn't something you choose like your career or where you go to college or what city you land in. It's much deeper than that. It's something you discover, you unearth, you excavate in your whole soul, in your inner being and sons and daughters of just everything imaginable that you're going to unroot and make it so amazing so you can play your part. Because the culture says, I am what I do. But scripture says, I do what I am. Those with privilege get to dream about finding a source of income in their line, in their call of God. And then do the work of justice to extend the opportunity to as many as possible. But the truth is not all of us get to achieve that. Um, and that's okay. In fact, most followers of Jesus around the world and our own country don't get to follow their calling via their job but they still have a vocation. They still have an impact in the kingdom of God and what you do matters. But again, who you are in Christ matters much more. Um, so it doesn't, when you get to that point of um, hating your job or not agreeing with your boss or having a real hard time with where you're at, just remember your discipleship in Jesus is what matters most. And so for those who do get their job in a line with their calling from God, it often takes decades to get or even to figure out if it's a right fit. And so no matter how great it is or how great your job feels or how mundane or not so great your job feels, um, work will always be full of toil and disappointment and, and even at its best. 
even with your dream job, everything that you've aspired to, to be and to do and the list that you made and the prayers that you prayed, even at its best, work is not God. And the ground is still cursed. And so how do we come into this point in a posture of spiritual formation and, and how, do we, how do we repurpose our work? Paid or unpaid, glamorous or mundane, or our dream job or underemployment in COVID, um, how, do you, how do we repurpose our work into a practice or a spiritual discipline of calling or vocation? And really we're asking, how do we do the same thing as our coworkers, but as a vocation of following Jesus? Well, to start, our work as follower of Jesus should have three basic qualities. It should be motivated by love, it should be guided by scripture, and it should be done with excellence. Number one, motivated by love. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1 about labor prompted by love or motivated or driven by agape, not by ambition or greed or status seeking or performative identity. And right then and there, that performative identity is something that I fell into so hard. Being an athlete my entire life, college football, I always had little goals and I was always striving towards something of the world. And I got caught and it hit hard and it hurt a lot. So I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you right now. If that's, I'm not saying little goals and being um, inspired by stuff is a bad thing, but if it's not Jesus, if it's not fixing your eyes on the actual prize of the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven, it could get dangerous. And I learned that the hard way and I just wanna plead my case to you. Um, other things are um, power or the search of self-worth or validation, um, seeking those things out. Um, we need to be first motivated and prompted by love. We do the same thing as the person, we might do the same thing as the person next to us in the same workplace, in the same office, in the cubicle next to us, but for a very different reason. And I want us to be different. I want us to be um, a family that we might in, be in the same vocation, same job as someone else, but we are prompted by love and we are prompted by the love of Jesus. Um, number two, we're guided by scripture. Some philosophers define work as adding value to the world. Willard called it the expending of energy to produce good. This means that all work is moral, not all work is blessable by God. And we do all that we can to find work that is blessable by God. Garden city kind of work, but it doesn't have to be glamorous. It, it can be changing tires at Les Schwab. It can be making coffees. It can be driving for Uber. It can be pulling weeds. It can be doing a whole bunch of other things, but we need to be prompted by love because it doesn't have to be extravagant. It doesn't have to be glamorous. All we have to do is follow Jesus. Um, in fact, historians argue that Christianity was the first worldview to ever dignify manual labor, <laughs> not as work for the slaves beneath the dignity of the culture or government, but as good and honest work before God and humanity. And so number one, we are prompted or motivated by love. Number two, we are guided by scripture. And number three, done to the best of our ability. And if you've been a Christian for a little bit, you've probably heard this already. Or if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard this a lot. Paul's beautiful address to the, the, to the church in Colossae um, in 
his letter to them, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. So that first phrase, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that there, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. So I've, truth be told, I've not liked all my bosses in my life. I've not liked all my coworkers. I've not loved my work environment all the time. And I know you feel that. But shifting our perspective as if Jesus was our boss and the reason why we do things and the reason why we respect and love our coworkers and our bosses is because Jesus is our boss. And may that perspective shift for you. Um, Dorothy Sayers many years ago said that the best way to serve Jesus at work is to serve the work, meaning to just be really, really, really good at our jobs. In her classic <laughs> disdainful tone, she said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to telling him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should be really good at making good tables. And there's a Hebrew, con Hebrew concept called kavana that Alan Hershey writes about in the shaping of things to come. It basically means the power of holy intent. Some rabbis teach that when the fall happened, the manifest glory of God was shattered into tiny imperceptible pieces. But when we do our work with Kavana, holy intent, when we bring our full presence and motivation of love and excellence to our work, and we really aspire that Jesus is our boss with any ordinary task, we are reweaving the manifest glory of God into the created order. And that's such a beautiful picture. Another um, story Rabbi tells is a story about a cobbler who used to weave shoes together, not Nike, think leather shoes, old school. As he tied the top of the shoe to the bottom of the shoe, he said, I'm reweaving glory. And so this is the same with the barista who just doesn't pour milk in the latte and sit on the counter and says, have, you know, here you go. You know, he or she takes the time to, make the latte art and to put the lid on perfectly and to like be generous enough to give you a smile and say, here, have a good day. It's the construction worker who doesn't just throw a bathroom remodel with the cheap um, materials. It's the preschool teacher who doesn't just babysit the kids, but gets on their level, soul to soul, eye to eye, and draws out the potential of that child. So with every mundane task that you have with your work, or whatever you're doing the day to day, if it feels mundane, if it feels monotonous, if it feels down, if it feels just, you're just sad sometimes doing the things that you don't wanna do, just know that everything that you do in that perspective shift of Kavana, that you're reweaving glory into your life and the kingdom and you're helping humanity flourish. And may that be a perspective shift for you. So in closing, we have ended each sermon or week with a practice and it's short and sweet. And with that, just that Hebrew word, um, kavana of holy intent of pursuing excellence and trying to take our job 
as something not mundane or annoying, but something that we can put forth as discipleship to Jesus and to get closer to Jesus and be more like Jesus in our work, um, to reweave the manifest glory of God into the created order. So this week, whatever your current expression of work may be, and I know we all have different jobs and different things that we're doing, but whatever it may be, commit to practicing Kavana in a very specific act. So a couple of things you can do is just ask yourself this question, where in my job can I shift my perspective from not mundane, but to Gavana or holy intent of excellence to Jesus as our boss. So just like the beginning of the story with, you know, this made up story, please don't quote me on this. It's not in the Bible, but I love dramatizing stories and filling in the gaps of humanity in the Bible. And, and you can't say it didn't happen where Jesus and his dad completed a project together and then being content and with practice Kavana, they give glory to the Lord for their hands and feet, able to do good works for the kingdom and make um, uh, helping the humanity flourish. So they pursue, so pursue your calling, pursue the understandings that it really does matter what you do. Whoever, whoever you are, whatever you're doing right now, watching, listening, driving, whatever it is, what you do matters, but who you are matters most. And may I encourage you to pursue both as an act of discipleship to Jesus. And so to end, um, a Lebanese artist once said, work is love made visible. So in the end, work, like all of life, is about becoming people of love, followers of Jesus, known by love. Working to earn love is a bad religion. Working to express the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit flowing from the deepest recess of your being as an act of worship of God and serving of neighbor. With Kavana, reweaving glory, being known for the things that you love and not for the things that you hate. We all have to work. The ground is cursed. May the Lord be with you and bless you. Let the Holy Spirit guide your thoughts and actions. And that is religion at its best. Let me pray. Father, I pray that uh, our perspective is shifted. I pray that um, Kavana, the holy intent of the things we do with our hands and feet, whatever our jobs look like, may our calling of being sons and daughters of you never change. May we be reignited with passion and zeal and love. Thank you for today. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for what your son did for us on the cross. Make us more like your son. Teach us what we know not. Give us what we have not and make us who we are not. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.